Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski and would like to open the show reminding all of you that the goal of this series is to present you a broad scope of issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology. Although our main focus might be gastroenterology, in each episode, we also plan to bring you cutting edge information outside of the GI field through a focused interview with an influential and interesting key opinion leader. Our guest today is a long friend of mine and colleague, Lily Brillstein, who is CEO of B Collaborative, a consulting firm focusing on value-based care. She's most commonly known though for her work at Horizon Blue Cross of New Jersey, where she led their value-based episode of care program. We are lucky and honored to have Lily today as our guest. Hello, Lily. Hello, Larry. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our honor. Lily, even though we're going to talk a lot today about value-based care, let's start by you giving the listeners a little introduction of yourself. Tell us about yourself and your career. Sure. So, my background is really in public health, and I started my career uh, doing work around HIV AIDS discrimination and domestic violence. And honestly, never ever thought I'd wind up working for any insurance company. Um, I spent really the first nine years of my career at a major hospital system in New York, um, after which I was recruited to work for a New York-based uh, regional health plan where I was responsible for uh, contracting for facility and ancillary services. I spent a lot of my time there um, sort of trying to choreograph a dance between the business teams and the clinical teams, um, because as when I got there, I saw really the business of each was being conducted without being informed at all by the work of the other. So in other words, contracts were being written by business folks who really did not have input from the clinical teams, and the clinical teams were talking to providers and others really without any information from the business teams. Um, so that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And coming from um, the public health space, it really, I really kind of needed to make a little bit of sense of that. Um, I was quite struck that as contracts were being written and negotiated every day, um, there, were, there was never, ever a discussion about the patient. The patient never came up in any um, contract discussion about care of those patients. And so I would say my uh, career as a collaborator really started there, right, in fee-for-service. Uh, I would spend time talking with the docs, and I would talk with my leadership and my team uh, at the health plan. We would meet and listen to each other, and we would contemplate together what made the most sense um, in terms of caring for our patients and making sure we use the most effective uh, use of limited resources. Uh, I really worked with the clinical teams to build presentations that we could deliver together. And really it was, you know, this was back in the, um, in the early 1990s, and it was really the first time there was really any collaboration happening um, between providers and, and managed care. This still exists today. Uh, in our work at Sonar, we are oftentimes dealing with either the medical side or the business side. Seldom do we speak with both sides together. And I, I can imagine how difficult it is on the inside of, the, of an organization as large as a health plan 
to make sure that everything that's being done on one side uh, coordinates with, with the other side. How long, did, Lily, how long did you work at the health plan? So I worked, um, I was at Hip Health Plan in New York for about nine years. Uh, and then I was, uh, I worked at United for a few years, for four years, and then I was at Horizon for about uh, just under seven. So really about 20 years I spent uh, on the health plan side. And I would say really in every one of those roles, I was always working with providers and working to sort of bring a different face of the managed care organization, one that was more of a partner, because that, that really is the spirit that, um, that, that I come from and the spirit that I bring to the work. And I, didn't, I just don't understand doing it any other way. You mentioned that you spent time at both United as well as Horizon. Are there differences between them? Anything you can share with us? You know, the differences um, in a national plan like United versus a regional plan um, are, are pretty significant. And in many ways, it's a bit easier to, to lift off certain uh, programs with a regional plan because you're typically dealing with one state um, and the markets, while they may be varied within the state, it's not quite as variant as it might be across the country. And really creating models that work across the country um, with a gigantic national plan, which also means the matrix is so much bigger. And so there's so much more coordination that has to occur in the house um, is, really, uh, is, is a really important difference. The things that are the same, though, are... The, you know, all of the health plans in this country, really their systems sit on a fee-for-service chassis and they're set up to think about and uh, pay for care in terms of increments and units of care versus what we think of in, uh, in value-based medicine or value-based care models where we're really talking about the suite of services related to a particular diagnosis or healthcare event or condition. And so, Making the shift on the system side, even alone, to be able to contemplate these models and pay for them is kind of a gargantuan task, um, not at all easy. And, and that is the same, whether it's a, a regional plan uh, or a national plan, in my experience. Again, the parallel to clinical practice on the provider side is strong here. We live in a fee-for-service world as well. Um, we perform a colonoscopy, we get paid for a colonoscopy. We have an office visit, we get paid for that office visit. The move to value-based care has to force everybody to think in a different mindset so that you're thinking about what's happening to that patient over the long term, what's happening to a population of patients uh, over the long term. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but it's interesting to see that the same difficulties are being experienced on the payer side as are being experienced on the provider side. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I sort of um, work around the country, I, one of my goals and one of the things I think that helps to make these models successful um, and that really they can't be successful without it is a respectful partnership. And that's not something we've had a lot of in this industry um, over time. And so I, I talk to payers about um, making sure, well, I talk to all the parties about 
you know, uh, the goal of sort of leveraging the expertise of each of the partners and respecting the fact that the different partners and parties bring a different set of uh, expertise to the table. And so with the providers, certainly their expertise is in the clinical care of their patients. And with uh, payers, they have the longitudinal view and data uh, of what's been happening to those patients outside of the physician's office that can enable them and help them identify where there are variations in care and cost of care. But I, I tell them both, you know, I, when I talk to payers, I suggest that it's really important to listen to the providers and not go in with an idea of what success will look like before we talk to the providers to see clinically what, what does success look like? How do we know we're successful here? And I talk to the providers about making sure they understand that not everything that might make really great clinical sense is easily administered or administrable by the plans. And so as they contemplate these models, that they need to be able to listen to one another and figure out a model that's clinically meaningful and also can be administered by the plans. Both of those things really have to be there and be in place for, for things to be successful. And I find that that shift in thinking is actually tough for a lot of players because they're, you know, we're so um, accustomed to contracting in, uh, in healthcare with our dukes up and everybody's sort of fighting. And this requires that everybody takes their, their fists down, does not go in and start with no, and, um, and consider what actually is meaningful and what can they actually, you know, sort of lift off. That is, it is so refreshing to hear you explain your thought process here. For the majority of my career, I would look upon the payer as the evil empire because the answers were forced upon us and the word we heard usually was no. Um, right. And what's interesting is to see what has transitioned over the last few years. Um, for most of my career, the hospital executives were closer to us. We saw them on a regular basis. We went on golf outing with, outings with them. We had social events with them. And yet we almost never had any interaction with the payer any of the executives from the payer, unless we were at contract time. And then it was an adversarial uh, experience. Today, things have flipped. On the hospital side, hospital systems have gotten so large that the people who are making the decisions uh, in the hospital systems are not close to the providers anymore. A lot of the providers now are employees of those hospital systems. And on the other side, I have been pleased, actually surprised uh, by the relationships I've been able to build on the, on the payer side. And one of the reasons you and I have known each other for so long is that we built our relationship with each other long before um, uh, we knew each other as, as colleagues in a different way. It was because you were on the payer side, I was on the provider side, we would speak at, at conferences together. And I, I'll never forget the first time I heard you speak, I thought, wow, I hope all the rest of the people at the payers are, are thinking um, the same way that Lily is. I'm still not sure that's the case. But um, let's, let's go a little bit deeper into your time at Horizon, because one of the things you are known for in the GI community are, are your episodes of care. 
so when I when I got there, which was in January of 2013, Horizon was just coming out of its um, its very first pilot in the specialty care value based models in the episodes of care, um, and it was a hip and knee replacement. Uh, uh, there were two episodes: hip and knee replacement uh, surgeries, and by the time I got there, the pilot had been uh, going on for about two years, and the pilot proved that for those orthopedic procedures, if you focused on all of the care rendered to the patient related to the surgery, rather than just uh, the increments of care, um, the overall outcomes and patient experiences were improved, and there was also uh, a reduction in overall cost of care. And that was really about sort of sharing data so that the orthopedic surgeons who were conducting these episodes, if you will, could see what was happening to their patients um, in a manner that they couldn't before because data wasn't being shared and they were only really focused on the care they rendered. Once they were in these value-based models, it became important to understand where were the patients going before and after they left surgery? Were that was the care optimized and was the use of resources optimized? And so, um, so all pillars of the triple aim, all the goals of the triple aim were being met um, successfully in, in the pilot. And so when I came in, I was asked to scale the program. And, um, and it was a wonderful opportunity, you know, being um, coming from a public health background and having a little bit of a different spirit than, um, than I had really found in uh, the managed care organization. And it was an opportunity to sort of rethink and reorganize um, sort of what does it mean to be a partner in healthcare and to be a part of creating better outcomes and experiences as opposed to just looking at units of care and increments uh, of cost of care. So uh, the, my goal was really to build a program that sort of tested the model in multiple scenarios, right? So not just in procedural episodes, which are pretty pretty simple to uh, to start with. They're they're a place that a lot of plans will start because they're simple to define. They're discrete uh, procedures. It's usually one and the patient is done. So you know you can build you know um, uh, a model that uh, sort of fits very neatly. Um, you can trigger it with the surgery and look at a few days before or a few weeks after to capture all of the related services and follow up activities um, and create some some good measures. But I was really interested in testing the model in, um, in different kinds of uh, episodes. So not just those that were procedural, but also in acute and chronic condition episodes uh, that are a little bit diff more difficult to, um, to construct. And I, I was also really interested in, in looking at whether we could sort of stretch the model a little bit um, if it, what I mean by that is if you think about episodes of care, uh, typically the model is extremely good at um, managing the care of patients who wind up in the episode. And it doesn't typically address whether the patient needed to be in the episode in the first place, right? Did the patient need the C-section? Did the patient need the knee surgery? And I was really interested in looking at, you know, could we, could we help address that um, as well. And in a, the state where I was working at the time in New Jersey, um, the state had the highest rate of C-section, for example, in the country and uh, by a lot. And um, so I wanted to be able to look at models that could, could address that. So 
Um, so we had a really, really good time. I had a, you know, a great team and, and we met with uh, our partners and we would invite them in to help us think about how to build these episodes. What was the criteria um, that made most sense? You know, when would we start? When would we end? What were the services that should be covered? What are the variations in care and cost of care that are, are most important? And what data did they need? Did the clinical um, experts need to be able to create success here and, and sort of reduce that variation in care and cost of care, which is really what these models are about? If you're just tuning in, you are listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Lily Brillstein, and we are discussing value-based care. So your pivot into GI made sense with an initial focus on colonoscopy. That's right. So, you know, I'm a big believer in starting in a place where everybody can figure out what to do and how to create success. I am not a huge believer in trying to jump, skip the evolutionary nature of the models and, um, and assume that you can go from fee-for-service to very complicated risk-based models um, uh, without the experience of um, sort of more uh, fundamental episodes. And so starting using GI um, and starting with colonoscopy as one of our very early episodes after the pilot made really good sense because um, A, there are tons of them. And, um, and while there's not a huge amount of opportunity per episode, um, because the, the continuum of care is not that big, it's pretty well contained. The doc has control over most of it. And the opportunity was really around two specific things in colonoscopy, and that was uh, the site of service and also the type of anesthesia used. And because the docs really could control most of um, those decisions and the continuum really wasn't that, that gigantic, it was, um, it was a relatively easy place to be able to, uh, to start in GI. And honestly, I found the, the GI docs um, were great to work with. The AGA, I found, was extremely supportive also, which was very, very helpful. It's not the case in every specialty. Um, and what happened as a result of that was our GI uh, partners became quite engaged and learned with us, as, as we learned, how to create success um, in these models using a, a pretty simple uh, episode in colonoscopy. And from there, we were able to build some much more um, complex episodes. And um, certainly uh, the IBD episode, which included both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, is, is a complicated episode. It's a chronic condition without a, a very neat beginning and end, um, has behavioral health components and a lot of other things that certainly impact patient outcomes and experiences and the cost of care. Um, and it was, it's really because of the partnerships we built, the trust we uh, developed, and the respect that we, the mutual respect that really we shared with our, our partners that allowed us to come together in rooms to figure out with no threats and no, um, no fists up how to build models that had some real um, clinical impact um, as well as um, creating financial uh, efficiencies that didn't exist before. Lily, you touched on a number of topics here, but, but one that, that strikes me is the difference in how the economic models can be crafted around 
something like a colonoscopy procedural bundle versus what type of economic models need to be crafted around an episode of care for a chronic illness. Our, our internal research that we performed with uh, Healthcare Service Corporation has shown an enormous difference in the variability of cost between these two types of entities. Let me give you an example. We have developed a concept called a beta concept. And it's very similar to the type of financial concept that's used uh, in financial portfolios uh, uh, for investments, where some, some stocks vary a large amount against an index, whereas others vary very little. And, and those that vary a lot are called high beta, and those that vary much less are called low beta. Well, we were able to create an index for GI illnesses, and then we plotted the variability and cost of all of the major GI conditions against that index. Colonoscopy varies very little against that, against that index. Uh, whereas inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease in, in particular, uh, has an enormous variation. So it's a, a high per capita cost. It has high variability in that per capita cost. And it's a symptomatic illness that has, has very significant effects on the patient population that suffers from it. So the challenges here are significantly different. I can see where, where bundles can be created uh, very efficiently for procedural uh, services like colonoscopy, where it's much more difficult for the, um, the disease-driven conditions. So Lily, we are talking about the difference between procedural bundles and disease-based bundles. How do you manage the difference between these two? You know, it's such a good question, Larry, and I get asked it a lot. And, um, you know, as as people are beginning to understand episodes and bundles, um, there's still a lot of sort of head scratching around how can it possibly apply to chronic condition episodes. And so what I would say is when, when you think about, if you think about a procedural episode, you know, you typically have some criteria that you use to, uh, to craft the model, right? So you think about what triggers the episode, meaning what event or procedure or diagnosis is it that qualifies somebody to be in the episode in the first place. And it's whatever it is, it, it um, is something that is, makes that individual clinically similar to other individuals who will be in the episode. And so in other words, it may be they're having a knee, uh, a knee replacement episode. And then you think about what is day one of the episode, meaning what's the first day that we're going to measure. And typically in a procedural episode, you'll look at um, some period of time before the episode, maybe, you know, two weeks or, or 30 days so that you can capture um, the, uh, that sort of preoperative uh, or prehab portion of the episode, if you will, the labs, radiology, et cetera. And then you want to figure out some portion after the procedure so that you can capture um, the post-acute care. Uh, did the patient go home? Are they going to a SNF? Where did they have, um, or what kind of rehab are they having? What's the use of opioids? 
um, is there a readmission, is there infection, et cetera. And so you, you kind of identify criteria that, that gives you the time period and takes the snapshot so that you're looking at a patient um, with the same view, looking at all the patients with sort of the same view of where they are in the, in the healthcare continuum. And again, in a procedural episode, it's pretty simple to do. In a chronic condition episode, you know, they're not one and done. Um, often in a situation like Crohn's, for example, patients um, continue to have the diagnosis. They don't have a quote episode that begins and ends, but in order to, um, to look at outcomes and look at experience and look at cost of care, we sort of have to somehow artificially create or create an artificial um, set of boundaries that allows us to take a snapshot of patients so that they are in a somewhat similar space. And so uh, as I build chronic condition episodes, I use the exact same design criteria. So that is what triggers the episode? And again, it's a decision that would be made between the clinicians and the payer and whoever the other partners are. So in Crohn's, for example, is it the date of diagnosis? Is it the date of a first um, uh, treatment? Is it an admission to the hospital? There really isn't a right or wrong. It depends on what the, the parties are trying to look for, what they're trying to look at. And then once you have identified what is it that qualifies a patient or an individual to be in the episode, you want to look at what's day one. What's the first day you're going to start to measure? Again, is it going to be the same as the trigger? Is it going to be the date of diagnosis? Is it going to be the first date of an infusion or, or some other treatment or an admission? And then how long will you um, keep that episode open? And this is where it's a little tricky, right? So in chronic condition episodes, again, there's not a natural end point as there is or might be in a procedural episode. And so you have to create some sort of artificial end point so that you have like measurement periods. And typically uh, in a chronic condition episode, uh, most of the episodes that I've uh, seen and been involved in building uh, typically are either six month or one year increments. So you look at the patient for six months or for one year based on all of the criteria that gets established and then you assess the quality uh, metrics that you've established and you assess the financial um, uh, thresholds that you've established as well. And then typically in chronic conditions, the patient will then, let's say the episode is 365 days. The 366th day becomes day one of their next episode, right? So they roll over into a second episode. Got the it. one one more complicating thing about the chronic condition episodes is that Sometimes, like in oncology, this happens. Year one of a patient's um, episode may be very, very different than years two and three, right? Much of the care, um, the aggressive care may really happen in the first year. And so sometimes years two and three of a chronic condition episode have different sets of criteria. Um, but generally, they, they sort of continue to, to roll over. Lily, you, cannot, you and I can probably speak for hours about the nuances of these episodes of care for chronic disease. And I'm going to lock you in right now to agree to come back another time so we can, we can discuss things further. Can I hold you to that? You can absolutely hold me to that. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. Until next time, this is Dr. K. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.